Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Good morning and welcome to another episode of Business and Legal Week in Review. Today is June 8th already. We're going to be talking today about a number of uh, stories that, that occurred last week, including uh, freedom of speech. And there's a really good story about uh, freedom of speech and Facebook and, and what you can and can't say. We're going to be talking also about um, some uh, class action issues with disability benefits, Alan Dershowitz's son. So we've got a good show coming up. Uh, of course, joined with me as always is my co-host, Bob Hughes. How are you doing today, Bob? I am on time today and ready to go. We are. It's it's a great Monday. <laughs> so far, I'm knocking on wood anywhere I can find it. I hear you. Well, before we get going, I just want to thank today's sponsor. Today's show is sponsored by Macram Resgui, and he's an author who has created a project called Introduction to the Law of Open Source Software. Now, if you know anything about open soft so, so, uh, software, you know that it is software that is created by someone or a group of people, and it, it is free to use. And a lot of the large companies like Google, they use and rely on open source software, say that five times fast, and, um, you know, but what we don't know about open source is oftentimes the legal ramifications. And that's the purpose of this book that Macram's going to be writing. Now, he needs your help in order to fund the project. And what he has, uh, he has created the project, Introduction to the Law of Open Source Software, on Zumal.com. That's Z-O-O-M-A-A-L.com. And he's in the process of compiling all of the necessary materials and getting the book ready to be published. Um, what he would, would need from you guys, if you're interested in this project, go to that page on Zamel, check it out, see if it's a project you're interested in investing in, and uh, he's looking for any sort of contribution that could be made to help him write the book so that uh, you know the general public will have a better understanding of the legal ramifications of open source software. All the links to the uh, crowdfunding page will be in the show notes, both on YouTube Live and on Blog Talk Radio. So check that out, and I want to thank him for sponsoring today's show. All right, Bob, that's going to do it for sponsors for today. Uh, before we get uh, going, I just want to say one more thing, and that is that uh, we have broken, I know it's not a lot for some people out there on YouTube, because some people have millions of followers, but we have broken the 400 mark, which is something that I was quite excited about. We have 402 subscribers now on YouTube. So I want to thank everybody who recently subscribed um, because we were hovering down in that like 392, 394 area for so long. So I appreciate all the people that have, uh, have subscribed over this past weekend. So thank you. And make sure that you tell your friends and family and, and 
uh, let them know to subscribe as well, because when you subscribe to the YouTube channel, you're going to get notified about all the videos that are posted, including these live broadcasts like we have today. So thank you for that. Exactly. All right, Bob. Thanks for your subscription, that's for sure. Absolutely. Yep. Oh, let's see here. Yeah, you know, Facebook and free speech kind of uh, topped things last week. There's been, um, obviously, with the Supreme Court ruling, but uh, the, the cases don't go away. <laughs> we'll actually, <clears throat> excuse me, kind of jump a story to two. I should have put that in, in the top. Uh, free speech is still free, even if it's posted on Facebook. And that's what the Supreme Court decided in a ruling on Monday. The justices ruled in favor, and we remember the story, I think, of a Pennsylvania man who posted threatening messages on the social media site about his ex-wife. Now, this is the first time the Supreme Court has dealt with a case involving free speech and social media. And the ruling says what you post online is protected by the First Amendment. Now, Anthony Ilonis of Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, was convicted in 2010 of making violent threats about his ex-wife on Facebook. One post said, fold up your PFA and put it in your pocket. And is, is it thick enough to stop a bullet? But the Supreme Court says the post alone wasn't enough to convict him of a crime and overturned the ruling. Even with the ruling, people say there should still be some sort of regulation on what you can say online. Now, police officers in, um, in account pronounces Shoekill County says what well, they always get calls about something posted on social media. And the Minersville police chief says posting on Facebook is similar to a posting on a bathroom wall. One person or even 100 could see it, but it doesn't mean it's true. Now, chief Combs, part of the, uh, the police chief of Minersville, says the Supreme Court really doesn't change how you charge someone with a crime. Posting something violent on social media could be a starting point. Just because you say it doesn't mean you'll do it. And that's the difference between a threat and free speech. Unless someone takes action to carry through on that threat, he says there's nothing we can do about it. And so basically it doesn't, it, it doesn't excuse what you say, but it changes the outcome. Was that probably the, 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 the long and the short of this ruling, Peter? And what can you, can't, what can you do and can't you do? Yeah, you know, it's, um, that's basically it in a nutshell. But really what it comes down to is that, you know, this is going to be looked at on a, a posting by posting basis. And, um, you know, you could have somebody imagine this for a second, Bob. Imagine that you want to use your freedom of speech and you post on uh, Facebook. I will be blowing up, you know, flight 111 uh, from San Francisco to Florida later this week. Now, that's freedom of speech, right? You're free to say it. But don't you think within a few minutes you're going to have a SWAT team at your front door. <laughs> there, there are consequences of what you say. <laughs> right. Because, you know, that could be looked at as a terroristic threat. So it's a real fine line between freedom of speech and then violation of a law. And so what I think that they're saying here at the Supreme Court is saying that you can say what you want. You have that freedom to say it. But there are ramifications for saying things that still violate the law because whatever you post is still going to be looked at in a legal context, and, and there'll be a determination as to whether or not what you said violates the law. So exactly. when you say, I'm going to kill my ex-wife, that could be a threat, and that could result in you being arrested. Um, anything, obviously, like I was, I was saying earlier with the airlines or anything about um, you know, some sort of terroristic act or threat, that's going to result most likely in Homeland Security getting involved, the FBI. So that's a, a serious thing. So, you know, it, it's, yeah, there's freedom of speech, but you have to exercise uh, reasonable behavior when you are 
employing your right to freedom of speech because there are still laws just because you're on social media doesn't mean you can be an internet troll, hide behind the screen, say what you want, and you know nothing's going to happen to you because it's freedom of speech. And you brought up a good point, and I think that uh, I'm going to speak out of turn from my experience in the law, but you know, Facebook, although it's a written word, it's still like saying things out loud. And if you say to your ex-wife, I'm going to kill you, chances are she's going to get a PPO against you. <laughs> and <laughs> and with, with a PPO comes surrendering of your firearms. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so you, you write that on Facebook, it's the same as saying it out loud to her face or to someone who was in earshot that could think that that threat is real and you could end up with a PPO based on your Facebook post. It's no, yeah, no difference. Like you say, you have, you have the right to say it, but you also have the responsibility to deal with the consequences of what you say. Yeah, and you make a really good point. What you said is exactly right. When you say it on Facebook, it's just like you're saying it to her face. Uh, the one added thing uh, with Facebook is that not only are you saying it to her, but to everybody else who might see that post. <laughs> and not so, put it in writing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So, you know, you, you say to your wife, I'm going to kill you, and then she calls the police, and then, you know, you're like, no, I never said that. But now it's the proof is, is on Facebook, and it's it's in the post. So... You know, freedom of any type, whether it's freedom to bear arms or freedom of speech or freedom of religion, any of it comes with a social responsibility. Just because we have freedoms doesn't mean that you can do or say whatever you want. And that holds true for the Internet. Just not a platform for you to hide behind. Not anymore. I mean, early days of the Internet, it was it was very difficult to find out who was who. There was a lot of, of anonymity. It was easy to post and say and threaten, but not now. So I think that, you know, exercise your freedom of speech, but do so in a reasonable manner. Here's, here's your reasonable doubt case, and, and will this be pursued? So you have someone who, says, who maybe admits to a crime online. Yeah, I killed my wife, or I killed my ex-wife. Um, can you prove, and he goes in, I didn't write it. It wasn't me. Oh, it was your account. Well, it was your password. It was your computer. But I wasn't there. I didn't do it. Is that reasonable enough doubt, doubt to say to somebody, hey, you know what? Maybe he didn't do it. Nobody saw him type it. You know, it's not beyond reasonable doubt, but I'm going to tell you a story real quick about Please. a case, an, active, an actual case that I had a number of years ago, and it involved a high school girl who was um, at odds with another student. And the, the other student, we're going to call her student B, she happened to have set up uh, an online chat with her boyfriend who was out of state. And she was sending a lot of naked pictures of herself over to the boyfriend out of state. And uh, one day she had in school showed girl A uh, one of these photos of herself and actually sent it to girl A and was like, look what I sent to my boyfriend. So girl A and girl B finally have some sort of falling out and girl A gets annoyed and creates an account on an adult website and lists <laughs> this girl's picture and creates a profile for her. And so now all of a sudden, you know, this girl's picture is online, girl B. So, the interesting thing is that girl A did it from her father's computer. And so oh, when geez. girl B went to the police, 
they traced the IP address and it led back mm-hmm. to the father's computer. So now what do you think happens? They go in and they arrest the father. <laughs> and they say, you know, this is your computer and you're responsible for it. And there was this whole big to-do and ultimately they bring the girl in and they question her and threaten her and say, you know, your father's going to go to jail because it's his computer. And ultimately... Um, it works out on the criminal end. They downgrade charges, and as an aside, Girl A actually sues for civil rights violations um, by the police <laughs> because the police didn't read her Miranda rights and that sort of thing. But probable cause, yes. Beyond a reasonable doubt, no. And I think that that's something that we've also seen argued in a lot of the online music sharing or downloading ah, yeah. uh, sites, right? Because a lot of those complaints, it'll be like, yeah, but there's 15 people that have used my computer. My cousin came over, my neighbor, I leave the computer open. You know, so beyond a reasonable doubt, no. But it depends on the circumstance, too, because if it's you and your son living in the house, and there's only two of you, and nobody else has access to that computer, and he says it wasn't him, well, then that, you know, could be enough. Sure. No. And, and that's funny that you say that, you know, you talk about the reasonable doubt situation because, again, I had a friend of mine whose spouse is a coach for a major sports program and was part of the um, downloading sweep, I guess if you want to call it, that came through a few years back. And I want to say that person paid – the fine, but it stemmed from the team using that coach's computer or coach's computers in the office that caused the problem. Right, right. And so, and actually, I'm searching right now to see if there's anything out there. I have to look it up to see if there was. Uh, I, I, and I want to say it was it was paid. Just part of it was to keep it out of the media. You know, and that that goes back to something that you know I talk about on on the law basics videos all the time because you know settlement the idea of settlement is, is sometimes it blows people's minds why would I settle if I didn't do anything wrong why wouldn't I fight this but the other side things that arise from from defending a suit may might be publicity you know now this is out there and now everybody knows what happened and it's bringing negative publicity to you or in this case the school. Um, the other the other reason might be because it's going to be cheaper for you to settle than it would be for you to defend the case because even if you win, you're still out all the money that you you paid to defend the case. So sure, yeah, yeah. that that's something that people often overlook, but it's a, a reality of litigation. Yes, absolutely. So it's 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 uh, still always always. Uh consequences for your free speech um and that's where our next story takes you a law clerk who said a trooper's death was not sad on facebook suspended with pay nj.com a superior court judge's law clerk is under fire for comments she made on facebook about the death of trooper anthony raspa she was suspended with pay on last tuesday According to a report from the press of Atlantic City, Leslie Anderson, a law clerk for Middlesex County Superior Court Judge Travis L. Francis, posted her comments on the News 12 New Jersey Facebook page in response to a report about Raspa, who was killed over the weekend in an on-duty crash with a deer. Anderson's comments have since been removed, but one of her comments, however, was captured on a screenshot and posted on Facebook. 
Not that sad and certainly not tragic, Anderson wrote. Troopers were probably traveling at a dangerously high speed as per usual, totally preventable. At least they didn't take any of the citizens they were sworn to serve and protect with them, is what she had written. In another post reported by the Press of Atlantic City, Anderson described the the praise of Raspa by other commenters for his service as absurd and nonsensical. And also in another post, she mourned the loss of the deer. And that was interesting the way she phrased it. Uh, Winnie Comfort, the director of communications for the New Jersey Judiciary System, told NJ Advanced Media Tuesday that Anderson was suspended for two weeks with pay pending an outcome of of an internal investigation. Now, an update to that that has come through since Judge Judge Travis L. of Leslie Anderson effective immediately, so she decided to quit. Um, but here you have, and this is, you know, again, again, this is the thing. If you were to say these things in the presence of individuals at work, would the outcome be the same? You know, I, I have a, a bit of a problem with this story, and, and here's the issue that I have with it, okay? I understand why they suspended her without pay because she's a public servant. As a law clerk, you're serving the public the same way the police do. And so if you're going to speak out about other public servants, uh, I understand that, that you know, you could lose your job or be suspended as a result of it. But here's where I'm a little confused over freedom of speech that we talked about a few minutes ago. She was not at work when she posted this. Um, right. What she said might not be nice it might be i mean unless you're you know a family member of the deer then i guess you would consider her comments nice but (laughs) otherwise you know they're not they're not nice i i understand that but you know you you now look at that question all right well where's the freedom of speech issue here she's not at work she's not saying anything necessarily hateful not nice but not hateful and so does she deserve to be fired? Is there a freedom of speech issue? And, and that's, you know, an interesting question. Uh, I think that it, it hinges upon the fact that freedom of speech and employment are kind of two different things. Uh, you know, and yeah. That goes back to some of the cases that we've seen over the few, uh, last few years involving comments that maybe somebody has posted uh, while being employed at StubHub, for example, there was there was something that was posted there, and um, you know. But here's something that's interesting. So the National Labor Relations Board, the National Labor Relations Board, they're the the organization that um, really deals with organized employee efforts, unions, and the National Labor Relations Act has been amended over the years to now. Um, provide guidance and sets regulations for online communications involving employers and employees. So they've expanded their reach from unions into the online world of employees. And what's protected is concerted activity. So the same way, Bob, that a group of people would go out, they'd be in a union, they'd be talking at lunch about unfair working conditions, right? And sure. my boss mm-hmm. couldn't go out and say, hey, what are you guys talking about? You're complaining about your job? You're all fired. Because that's protected concerted activity. They're all, there's a, more than one, and they're talking about certain issues that are protected by the National Labor Relations Act. Now, here, 
this woman is not talking at all about anything related to her job. She's not talking about working conditions. She's not talking about pay. She's not talking about overtime. She's not talking about OSHA, nothing. This is her own thought. And so I think that the ultimate reason for the suspension, just to put this into some sort of, of clarification, is that as a public servant, she had a duty, and, and, and that duty extended into not degrading, bashing, or criticizing other public servants. And so now that, you know, that, that's, I think, where it stems from. All right, we've got to look into this and see what the legal ramifications are. Obviously, she just decided to resign for whatever reason. Maybe they told her that they were going to fire her and gave her an opportunity. Yeah. I don't know. But there's so much at play here, and there's so many arguments, but I think it comes down to what you said at the beginning of the story, which is you have freedom of speech, but you have to be careful with what you say because there still are ramifications. Is it ever going to come to a point where – the judicial system is going to start align, aligning with people or citizens and forcing companies to outline what they expect of off-premise behavior and employment. No, no but I think that is uh, what's happening on the employ, employment side, the employer side, with social media policies because most mm-hmm. companies now – have social media policies in place, and they tell the employees explicitly, here's what you can and can't say. There's actually language that goes into most social media policies that says, you know, you can't say this, 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 or this, but any of these things that we're telling you you can't do, it has no bearing on your rights under the National Labor Relations Act, and there's this whole ah, big okay, thing. Okay. So I think that employers are going to take it in their own hands to create social media policies, and then I think that from a judicial standpoint, it's a case-by-case analysis, and one of those those critical points will be, was there a social media policy, yes or no, and then it'll continue on from there. What did you say? Mm-hmm. You know, that sort of thing. But remember, as an <laughs> at-will employee, which is what this law clerk was, sure. you can be fired for anything as long as it's a non-discriminatory reason. Mm-hmm. And that's, yeah, we've talked about that before, you know, especially if you're in a small company, it's probably best just not to give a reason because you're opening yourself up to interpretation. Just say we're done. (laughs) Protect yourself. Don't try to be a good guy and and, 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 uh, explain why you think something is one way. Just cut your ties. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Well, it doesn't always, um, you know, it's not always Facebook that people are concerned with when you post online and you get sued. So Vegas lawyers are settling a suit over Internet libel. Two Las Vegas attorneys settling their defamation suit against an anonymous Internet poster who claimed one used sexual relations to advance her career in Las Vegas. Mary Brown, a defense attorney and a former deputy district attorney, and her husband, Phil Brown, settled a 2012 lawsuit they filed over comments made on the Las Vegas Review-Journal's website. The settlement was announced Monday, just days after the Nevada Supreme Court affirmed the Clark County District Court's earlier ruling that the anonymous comments were not protected free speech. In its ruling issued on Friday, the Silver State's High Court found the Browns are not public figures, which gives them greater protection against defamatory statements. As deputy district attorneys, the Browns were government employees, not elected officials, Justice Nancy M. Seda wrote. We conclude that the Browns are not public figures. 
Doe argues that the Browns, who is the defendant in the suit, Doe argues that the Browns placed themselves in the public by addressing the media multiple times through their careers. According to the opinion in her lawsuit, Mary Brown said a defamatory poster signed his comments, lawyer. She <laughs> claimed that Doe lawyer appended to the newspaper's 24, or excuse me, December 14, 2011 story headlined, Family Judges court, Courting Stirs Rift. A defamatory comment stating that Mary Brown, a chief deputy district attorney with the Clark County District Attorney's Office, had sexual relations in order to get promoted to the <laughs> Clark County District Attorney's Office. That statement was false, according to Brown's argument anyway. Um, or, <laughs> sorry, I'm trying not to laugh about this. Um, <laughs> two days later, Brown said lawyer repeated the defamatory statement in a posting attached to the story. Feud puts court cases on hold. She said she did it again on a January 4th story, second romance cover-up alleged, and again on a January 23rd story, family court judge removed from child welfare case. The stories centered on an alleged relationship between a family court judge and a female prosecutor. Doe lawyers' statements affect the plaintiff's business reputation by communicating to the public that Mary Brown attained her position as chief deputy district attorney with the Clark County District Attorney's Office by means of sexual acts, the complaint stated. So basically, are there different standards for public there's, there's kind of two things going here. One is, are there different standards for public officials or public image people and non-public image individuals when it comes to what can be said about them online? And two, this doesn't necessarily, free speech isn't always about Facebook. Right. You know, go back, for, forget we have the internet for, for a minute, go back to the 1980s and uh, the way that you got your entertainment news is through the Inquirer. So, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You, you, you go, and, and this is going to answer both of those those points or address both those points. Um, public figures do have a higher threshold um, mm-hmm. before something becomes defamatory. So, you know, when you put yourself in the public eye and, and you know, clearly giving an interview or responding to a media inquiry, that's not going to do it. But somebody that is making a living out of being in the public eye, Howard Stern, um, you know, Somebody on television, Bruce Willis, these are people that have made money, made their living out of being involved in the public. And so the same idea of privacy rights, you know, like you can't photograph people and you've got these stars that are being photographed by paparazzi Mm -hmm. all the time. If you were uh, a a non-celebrity with a little kid, you might have slightly different rights than, than if you were Brad Pitt and Angelina with all your children. Um, there is a different standard. It's because you intentionally place yourself in the public side. So it's the other side yeah. of the sword. Right. So now, you know, you, you take somebody that was, um, let's take somebody, for example, that was not a celebrity until the TLC show. So there was a show. Um, <laughs> what was it? It was the, the, the Kate Gosselin show. Um, can't oh, remember yes. the name of it. oh yeah. John and Kate. Uh, plus John eight. and Kate. Right. <laughs> and then John got the boot, and now it's just Kate plus eight. Um, but she was essentially an average person before they brought her onto the show. And since she's been on the show, there have been a ton of tabloid stories about her having affairs with her bodyguard and all sorts of things. And so it's it's interesting because you take those comments when she's a non-celebrity, and that could be defamatory because here you are, 
a housewife in a small community and you've got somebody alleging that you're having an affair and that could be defamatory. You could have an action. Now you take the same woman years later who has been in the public eye and now the inquirer says she's sleeping with her bodyguard. Is that actionable? Maybe not. And it, it wasn't, in fact, um, against a lot of the publications that, that said this is what we've heard. Yeah, it's it's kind of funny because the the, the you know, when you enter that bubble, you're using that bubble for self promotion. You don't consider the fact, and, it, and I hate to say that it makes sense that you can't have your cake and eat it too when it comes to the media. Right. You know, if, if you're gonna if you're going to use them to further your agenda or yourself, then you know, and I, I mean this side of saying that. I, she killed a, a puppy in the street the other day. I saw her do it, or, you know, or you know, some, something that is an action that can be probably proven or disproven when it comes to what type of uh, protection they have. But the problem is, is the opinions are probably more so than anything. Yeah. Yep. But okay. remember, you know, you're entitled to your opinion, and and your your opinion is is part of the freedom of speech and. An opinion is not necessarily defamatory, but depending upon you know what you say, what you do, this is another one where there's yeah. no there's no real line in the sand about what's defamatory and what's not, and and that's why some of these cases are difficult because you have to look at the totality of the circumstances to see whether or not those actions in this case become defamatory because the similar or same actions in another case with another person might not be defamatory at all. Right. No, and that's, yeah, and, and, and I wonder how much it is, 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 you know, using the word allegedly and stuff like that. You know, and that's the thing is it's not going to end with these cases. It's not going to end with this Supreme Court ruling. So it will be something that we will continue to watch, as always. Yeah. Because you'll want, you'll want to know how things change, trust me. Um, you want to know how many people you can criticize online without getting in trouble. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, that's the beauty of Facebook. <laughs> Everyone's got an opinion. Um, you're a big, are you a big movie fan? You I am. The movies? I you, go you to gonna... my living room and <laughs> I rent them. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's because we're we're using the media for our personal gain. Got to watch out for people seeing us and picking on us. Um, uh, there's some things that I like to go to the theater to see just because I know that it's not going to translate well to the small screen. Uh, the new movie, uh, well, I know it's called a new movie, the new take on Point Break, which was a great movie in its own right the first time around, looks pretty intense this time that I want to see it, and I'm not a big reboot fan. Right. So, but the point being is AMC Regal Cinemas, these are the big boys, are under a Department of Justice investigation. Click on Detroit.com, which is the Fox 2 channel provider here in Detroit. Two of the county's biggest movie theater chains are under investigation by the U.S. Department of Justice. The DOJ is looking into how both chains, AMC and Regal Entertainment, use their clout over smaller competitors. Reportedly... Theaters tell Hollywood film studios they won't screen certain movies if competitors located in close proximity also screen the film. Small, independent-owned multiplexes claim big movie powerhouses swipe business away from them by using that particular technique. Now, that was the argument used by Viva Cinemas, which filed a lawsuit against AMC in April. 
Viva claimed that AMC broke antitrust laws by threatening major studios to not show films at Viva and cutting off the flow of first-run films to the theater, causing them to go out of business, according to the complaint. The two chains hold a lot of weight in Hollywood, where AMC operates 4,972 screens, and Regal runs 7,334 nationwide. Um, <laughs> this, is, uh, this is just... This, could this be... A Rico situation? Is this organized? I don't know. I, I, I mean, it, you, you could, you could almost see that argument happening. I mean, this is, but you know what? Look, this is what happens when you've got powerhouses that that are controlling an industry, and, and you know, sure. it's akin back to years ago when there was a big dispute over the cable companies and the satellite companies. Oh, yeah. Um, right. Cold you know, companies. and. Yeah, exactly. And and public service, that sort of thing. So I don't think it's going to rise to RICO. I think that it's interesting. Um, I don't know how far it's actually going to go. I mean, clearly, if they're going to say, we're not going to broadcast your film because of this, this or that, that, that might be something. But I think this will probably end up settling, going away, becoming, you know, a little bit of nothing. Um, <laughs> no criminal charges. No. AMC is huge. They're all over the country. They even have those dine-in theaters. Have you ever been to one of those? I've not. No. I, I, when you said that, I perked up. I'm they have these theaters throughout the country where I think there's a couple in New Jersey. I know there's some in Florida where you go and they, there's like a pull-out tray that goes in front of you, and they come with mm-hmm. food. But, like, you order food off a menu, and, and the, the chairs are spaced out appropriately. Um, so you're not eating on top of somebody else's lap, and you have like a meal and a movie. Now, if the cabin depressurizes, does a an oxygen mask drop from the ceiling? <laughs> <laughs> that's what it sounds like to me. It is in first class. That's all. <laughs> it, it is. It's definitely first class. You got these nice big chairs, and they put your tray up. But yes, <laughs> I'm going to ask about the oxygen masks. <laughs> so like maybe you get pillow, warm cookie. Uh, well, that's I've not seen those out to look for those. There used to be one called Cinnamon Suds locally that was great. You know, high top tables served beer, food. It was it was the best place to see films, but unfortunately, it went away. Maybe this is why. Um, yeah, so this is just going to go away. This is this isn't going to be. They they there if if the allegations are true, there are bigger problems involved. Is that correct? Yeah, definitely bigger problems. So. <laughs> so they will uh yeah this like say settle this and and be done with it i'm sure yeah nobody nobody anyone anyone no one will be none the wiser anyway um, also from yes <laughs> we, have, <laughs> we have a couple small where i live we have a couple small screens that just went digital and there was a big to do about that because of the money needed to go to digital right um, right you know fifty sixty thousand the three theaters near me, two had Kickstarter campaigns or something to that effect, and one had has to, took out an EDC loan. Wow! To handle this, and the, the the interesting thing was, and we tried. I worked for a local radio station when this went down, and tried to get the one theater owner that had the Kickstarter program on the air for an interview. And my question is, what have you been doing with your money for the last 20 years? Yeah. Yeah. Not been reinvesting in the theater. Now you're going to go to the people to save you. And I'll be darned if that guy didn't raise $80,000. Wow. On the internet. I'm like, wow. 
I couldn't like, and not from local people. I mean, this is people all over the country. Apparently, they you know, appreciate the smaller theater. Then, sadly, not long after that, the guy died. Well, that's which that's has nothing to do with my story. <laughs> that has nothing to do with my story. I just thought I pointed out. <laughs> you would think, though, that in an industry like uh, theater, if you own a theater, you know mm-hmm. that that media changes rapidly. Right. I mean, look, we went from. Right. You know, film, then then you had laser discs, and then you had CDs and DVDs, and so it's constantly changing. You would think that you would have a fund to make sure that you can stay current, even if you're a small theater, or worse yet, a decent enough business model that you could go to a bank and get a loan for fifty thousand dollars and say, hey, you know what, I'm going to pay this back, and here's my business, here's my books to show that I can. Yeah. And I don't, and I think that's the problem. I have a real problem with subsidies. Yeah. So if you can't maintain your business you shouldn't be in business but uh yeah that's the, uh, don't tell my wife that because she'll she'll make me quit <laughs> <laughs> anyway no oh, back to michigan <laughs> back to michigan <laughs> recently some killings have prompted the michigan aclu to release a phone app for recording police all the rage today there was just a case over the weekend recording police a new police app, or excuse me, a new phone application released by the ACLU of Michigan last Wednesday urges police to police the police, or excuse me, urges citizens to police the police. The launch of Mobile Justice Michigan comes just over a month after a federal immigration and customs enforcement agent fatally shot Terrence Kellum, a 20-year-old Detroit man, wanted on a robbery warrant. The agent, Mitchell Quinn, said he feared for his life when Kellum lunged at him with a hammer during the attempted arrest. I think most would. The free application allows users to immediately capture audio and video footage, which is then automatically transmitted to the ACLU. Once sent, the user is asked to complete a survey for the ACLU to use in cases of follow-up. They just they want to take the interaction, the person, the, the person out of the equation. So they want to make sure they're recording and get it. Uh, yeah. There is also a witness function. Get this one which alerts other application users when someone is being stopped, arrested, or questioned by police. So now you get to draw a crowd. The idea <laughs> being that they can <laughs> head to the location and record police for themselves. Uh, I don't think I can make this up. Similar state-specific applications were also launched in Mississippi, Missouri, and Oregon with plans to expand nationwide. Now, the ACLU being ever thoughtful, has recommended these rules of engagement. First of all, announce to the police that you are reaching for your phone. Then let them know that you are attempting to access the app to record the exchange. (laughs) What do you think is going to happen now? If the officer forbids or prevents you from doing so, you should attack the officer. No, uh, do not argue or resist. (laughs) That's what most people try to do. Follow the officer's instructions. If your rights have been violated, your attorney will argue that case later. Mm-hmm. If the officer attempts to touch your screen in an effort to destroy the evidence you've captured, don't worry. The moment the recording is stopped, it will automatically be sent to the ACLU <laughs> of Michigan. <laughs> they, have taken, they have taken the personal possibility of failure out of this equation. As <laughs> Bril- is, 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 is asinine as it sounds, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. I wish we could use it for some other form of, uh, or other purpose. Uh-oh, I, automa- I, I accidentally bumped that camera to turn it on. The ACLU is going get to get a video they may not want to watch, or maybe oh they will. Um, did you imagine sitting in the ACLU watching all these videos come in? <laughs> I, I'm curious, you know. 
I, I hate to twist it this way, but this is the way I think. How long before someone doing something they shouldn't be doing, maybe robbing a store or committing a crime, pushes the button on accident and transmits the crime? <laughs> and at what point will the ACLU be bound by law to turn that over? Yeah. Well, there's no attorney-client privilege. You're just sending it to the ACLU. (laughs) Whatever you send to them, they would be subpoenaed. Yeah, they'd get that for sure. Uh, I I, I don't know. This is extremely humorous because, first of all, the attracting a crowd thing. Oh, you know, oh look, somebody's getting beaten on you know Avenue B, and then you get a whole group of people. Let's go, let's go. A rave app for crying out loud. <laughs> but the best, the best. Announce your reach oh. for my. I'm reaching yes. for my phone. <laughs> and and the cop will then say, No, you're not. You are going to keep your hands in place where you're. They are. Is what's what I would suggest the cop to say, whether he actually is reaching for his phone or not. You don't know. But wait a minute. I'm attempting to access the ACLU app. <laughs> so I, I don't you. care. <laughs> don't move your hands. And then he's going to move his hands and get shot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Before he can transmit the feed to the ACLU. <laughs> I hate I hate to say it, but this is just, yeah, it's, 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 it's a great idea, but it's, it's just not the best idea. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's, 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 I, I understand why, and it's brilliant for that reason, but ex, A for effort, E for execution. Yes. <laughs> and and I'm sure that, uh, and I'm sure that it will work in some, it, you have to have sense enough to turn it on before you're about to have the confrontation. Because yeah. once and, you get to the point where the officer is going to control you, that's called, he's going to control you. <laughs> right. And you got to make sure you get your announcements out first. You know what though? <laughs> dash dash cam holder. Here's here's our million dollar idea. Dash cam holder for for personal vehicles. <laughs> That's great. Body cam. You know, I think that um, I I think I understand the idea that the the officer might break your phone and so now it's safely and securely transmitted to the ACLU. But you see these things on the news all the time. Just this morning, I was watching. I think it was Good Morning America, and I saw a group of teens. I can't remember what state they were in. Who were uh, that was the the pool thing, right? Yeah, that was Texas. Yeah, McKinney, Texas, just outside That's of right. Dallas. Yeah, yeah. So they're in Texas, and and they're apparently either sneaking in or not not members of this community pool or whatever it is. And Careful, then, Peter, you're going to tell the other side of the story. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, if they had the ACLU phone app, this would all be recorded. You, but you won't get the ratings you want if you don't say some cops beating up a 14 year old. Yeah, well, that's but that's what happened. That's at least what yeah. the video shows. And it wasn't an ACLU app, and nobody announced it. No. Apparently, <laughs> had one officer running this, this, you know, multiple, I think it was like 15 years or something. And yeah. um, this one girl, who he puts her down on the ground, and then another cops come and hold the big to do. But that's a developing story. And But that was all recorded without the ACLU app, so... <laughs> and it made it to the media just fine. Um, <laughs> go figure. Yeah, yeah it's it's it, it, and the funny thing is, is everyone's going to the, the 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 best thing about that is exactly what happens is this witness function, which alerts other application users. Um, usually, you don't have to. Usually, there's going to be enough people standing around. They're going to start recording anyway with the current state of affairs. 
Um, yeah. You know, a a to possibly I don't know if they could sell that footage, but um, or just provide it. But enough people are interested nowadays that you'll you'll probably record it. I personally would record it to protect the officers, but that's just yeah. me. You know, unless you're doing something thought? incredibly stupid. I know. <laughs> you're doing something stupid, then that's his own fault. But, um, no, and, and there's, of course, yeah, I don't even want to get into that whole discussion on that thing. Jeez, oh, man. So, and he's, and police are guilty until proven innocent all, lately also. So, which maybe they deserve it as a group because they haven't handled things in the past very well. But it's, it's the, it's the, um, for every one cop doing bad, there's, Probably a hundred that don't, but yeah, eh, we'll never win that argument. Nope. <laughs> uh, speaking of Dallas, they have folded like a weak house of cards or attracting a shopping bag fee. I seem to remember this. Uh, yeah. Facing a lawsuit and threats of state intervention, Dallas on Wednesday repealed a partial ban on single-use bags and refused to impose a harsher complete ban. The Dallas City Council in March of 2014 approved an environmental fee, we'll call it, ordinance that required retailers to charge customers five cents for each single-use carryout bag, plastic, or paper. The ordinance has raised about $500,000 for the city since it took effect last year, or this year, excuse me. The council repealed the law on Wednesday with a 10-to-4 vote. The vote came a month after four plastic bag makers, interestingly enough, sued the city in Dallas County Court calling the ban an illegal tax preempted by state law. The bag makers claim they lost sales in Dallas and now have to make short manufacturing runs that add considerable expense to the process. Mayor Mike Rawlings cited the lawsuit and possible state intervention in voting no, but said his vote was not in support of the lawsuit and that he does want the city clean. He said, I was elected by the people, not the bag manufacturers, Councilman Dwayne Carraway said. So we go back to being dirty Dallas. We cannot just have a dirty, trashy city. Caraway also criticized city businesses for giving out the cheap single-use bags instead of reusable, costlier bags. Councilman Rick Callahan and Shelfie Cadane noted that all litter is a problem, and the laws against littering were on the books already. Wait a second. Are you talking about a government that has laws that they don't enforce so they're passing new laws? Where would that happen? If the <laughs> laws were working, we wouldn't have this problem, Caraway responded. We need to protect the citizens. Rawlings said the city is doing a very good job enforcing the laws we have. Well, apparently you're not. In spite of the good intentions of the city, the environmental fee was an impermissible tax, the bag makers argued in their lawsuit. It raises more revenue than is reasonably necessary to subsidize the city's efforts to ensure compliance with the ordinance, the complaint states. The tax imposed by the ordinance is not authorized by the Texas Constitution or Texas statutes. It is not a property tax, a hotel occupancy tax, or one of the miscellaneous other taxes a city may impose nor is it a permissible sales tax. A city may impose a sales and use tax only if approved by a majority of voters in an election. The plaintiff has also cited a 2014 opinion by then-Attorney General Abbott that concluded such bag bans violate state law. Um, did they just mess up in how they did it, <laughs> or is there no way yeah. to do this? No, I think unless you get this passed through the state um, you know, bodies, I don't think that you can do this. I just don't think it's right. But I think that this is, I mean, it's like the, the Dallas Tea Party without the tea. Um, because <laughs> they were able to, I, I don't know, this is a good thing. I mean, I, I applaud this because somebody looked at it and said, this isn't right. And they did something about it. And that's that's pretty good because I think that the, they could, the bag tax. They could call I, it the Dallas Tea Bag Party. Could, you could call it that. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if anybody would, but they could. 
yeah. Is there any way for the, you know, I mean, here's the thing is, you know, in your mind of minds, is there any way for a city to do this legally? I don't think so. I really don't think not on the city level, unless there's something in a state constitution that's going to give a city that sort of autonomy to create taxes. But at the same time, and and I I haven't looked into it enough, there are cities out there like San Francisco, for example, that charge... Um, companies, uh, taxes and and fees for commuting. Like, for example, San Francisco has this commuting tax that they pass along to employers in San Francisco. Now, I don't think it affects the employees, but it affects people conducting business in San Francisco. Now, I don't know if there's a difference between what the city can impose on a corporation or a business entity versus what they can impose on a, 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 a citizen, I would think that there has to be some difference because I can think of at 10 states off the top of my head where there are cities within those states where they have uh, various taxes for employers that the average person so doesn't you, have to pay. And even if you put a, uh, a, a deposit, you'd still have to go through the state um, election process. Yeah, yeah. So I think maybe so, maybe there's a fine line here between the city can do on a citizen-wide basis versus what the city might be able to pass for a business entity availing itself of the privilege of conducting business in that city, if that makes sense. I know. Akin to suing a gun manufacturer for the murder of an individual, if you can prove that the bag thrown in the alleyway was from a particular store, charge the store to clean up the the, the bag. <laughs> there you have it. <laughs> Ta-da! <laughs> All fixed. <laughs> and that's the way my mind works. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's the point where you're supposed to tell me I should be a lawyer. Uh, <laughs> no, you don't want to do that. No, I don't want to do that. I've heard I've heard too many bad stories from them. <laughs> um, Alan Dershowitz, speaking of lawyers. Suing the Celtics home for a slip and fall. This is interesting. If TD Garden kept its bathroom stocked with paper towels, attorney Alan Dershowitz would not have slipped and hurt his leg at a Celtics game, he claims in court. I wonder who his attorney is. The iconic attorney says he was teaching in Cambridge at Harvard Law School when he attended the June 1st, 2012 playoff game at the Garden. During a timeout in the fourth quarter, Dershowitz left his fifth row seat and entered the men's bathroom. The May 29th complaint filed in Suffolk County Superior Court states. Now, Dershowitz says the tiled floor was covered in a pile of water. I don't know how water piles that he believes had been there for at least an hour because he's an expert on water piling. Uh, Professor Dershowitz stepped onto this wet area of tile, which was open and obvious, and violently slipped causing him to fall upward and then hard upon the tile floor. Can you imagine as the, can you imagine as maybe the manager of the TD garden seeing this happen to Alan Dershowitz and just going, man, I just quit now and severely (laughs) twisting his right knee and leg landing on his back. Unfortunately, the complaint states now Dershowitz says he needed to use the handrails to get back to his center court seat. What was him? And soon found that his right knee and leg became unbearably painful. Not complaining out his back though. 
When Dershowitz complained to TD Garden staff about the dangerous condition of its bathroom, they apparently recognized him because they were concerned enough by the severity of his injuries that they had the professor rushed to Massachusetts General, according to the complaint. Dershowitz says that an MRI revealed a grade one sprain pattern of the medial collateral ligament and a small joint effusion with synovitis. Three years later, Dershowitz says the debilitating pain continues to this day that he may have to go under, undergo surgery in addition to the ongoing physical therapy. There were no paper towels in the bathroom at the time of his fall because that's probably the first thing he looked at. Why did I fall? <laughs> Dershowitz says TD Garden is to blame for his, because it wasn't my fault. Dershowitz says TD Garden is to blame for his injury since it didn't give guests a means to dry their hands after washing them. They'll be installing blowers into every bathroom now. Dershowitz says the garden hadn't even erected a wet floor sign in the obviously hazardous bathroom. Dershowitz itemized his medical expenses at fifty nine hundred dollars and eighty well fifty nine eighty four so um, six grand. Um, open and obvious? No. You have no idea what I want to say. You have no idea. <laughs> I know what you want to say. I know oh. who you want to say about it, and that's why you won't say what you want to say. Oh my God. <laughs> This is why people hate lawyers. (laughs) Here it is. This is why. I don't even Uh, know what to say. I don't even know what to say because I I, I just, I can't. How old is Alan Dershowitz, right? He's in his what, 60s, 70s? I I was going to go with 93, but we'll go down. Okay. Okay. So you want to, let's do this from. A um a professional <laughs> a professional standpoint. Here we go. Okay? okay. I'm defending this claim. What am I going to say? I'm gonna say this. I'm going to say that the condition was open and obvious, as you pointed out. You should be a lawyer, Bob. Then I'm going there to say <laughs> that the condition was um something that was rapidly evolving. It was uh, there were towels that were put in at the beginning of the game, the towels were used. It was, you know, we were in the process of restocking. This is how often we come in and we do the towels that, um, you know, the the puddling that that he's talking about, well, he calls it piling, but the puddling, it it was only in existence for a short period of time. I'm also going to argue that it's reasonable to expect water on the floor of a bathroom, regardless of the paper towels, because when you go from the sink to the paper towel holder or blower, most often, especially if you're like on the parkway or the throughway in Jersey, you're walking 10, 15 steps to get to the point where you can dry your hands. What do you think is happening to the water as you're walking over to the dryer? So that's Mr. what I'm going to argue. <laughs> Mr. Dershowitz, it's amazing that you are with us today considering all the rain you've probably walked through. Yeah, exactly. Then I'm going to say, though, on the, on the, the damages, I'm going to say – I. You are, how am I going to put this in a nice way? You are um, a collector's item, and you are not as young as other people are, and therefore (laughs) um, your bones and muscles are going to react differently than the average person. But the injuries that you're alleging are a sprain, a sprain pattern, a, a pattern of sprains. And so, you know, is your condition that you're complaining of now, aches and pains, which I have every morning when I wake up and I did not fall in a wet bathroom, are your, your pains, are they proximately caused by this accident? 
are they directly related to your fall in the bathroom? That's what I'm going to argue. <laughs> He's going to you're going to pro prorate his injuries. <laughs> so He's going to get mad at us for laughing at him. Well, I'm not, um, I, this is from a professional level. This is what I would do if I were defending this case. Because <laughs> since I'm not defending this case, my heart goes out to him. I'm very sympathetic. I hope that he's more careful in the future. Um, well, and you talk about the debilitating pain that he continues to experience. I submit to you that the case of Mark the Bird Fitterich, who hurt his knee, and by compensating for his knee, threw out his arm. So there. I'm going to accept that. But, you know, I'm going to <laughs> add to this discussion. I'm going to throw in, is Mr. Dershowitz a public figure? And therefore, is there a heightened level of um, uh, of thick skin that he must endure when it comes to freedom of speech? So what is your opinion on, on Mr. Dershowitz? Is he a public figure or not? He is certainly a public figure. Yep. I'm going to go with you on that one. And there we have it. I just protected us all. <laughs> Dismissed with prejudice. <laughs> Case closed. Moving on. Next. <laughs> this is something that could could possibly affect Mr. Dershowitz next time he's in uh, New York. And we've talked about this, and we this is interesting that this is coming. This is coming to a head, and it's New York right now, but it will be all city soon. Medallion lenders, which we'll explain what kind of what a medallion is in a second, want New York City crackdown on Uber. CourthouseNews.com telling us Queens, New York, tax, or excuse me, the New York's tax industry is on the brink of collapse because the city is letting services like Uber trample territory reserved for medallion holders, credit union claims in court. Um, a medallion is basically a license. Is that correct? Yeah. My understanding of it. Um, and that allows you, and it, and it's like a liquor license, it has value because they only issue so many. Yeah, that's right. And so Melrose Credit Union and three others brought a petition last week in County Supreme Court to make the New York City Taxi and Limousine Commission uphold the laws that give taxi medallion owners the exclusive right to accept street hails. With billions of dollars in financing the taxi medallion sales on the line, credit unions say Uber's popular smartphone service or electronic or e-hails flies in the face of a New York City's Hail Act. The law explicitly states, it shall remain the exclusive right of existing and future taxi cabs licensed by the TLC as a taxi cab to pick up passengers via street hail. No driver of any for-hire vehicle shall accept a passenger within the city of New York by means other than prearrangement. That's the word right there, prearrangement, is the, the linchpin. The TLC itself has acknowledged, or excuse me, allegedly acknowledged that e-hails are basically just a newer form of street hail. Uh, so going to hail in a bucket. Indeed, the definition of hail included in e-hail rules that the TLC adopted on January 29, 2015, demonstrates that an on-demand e-hail accomplishes exactly the same thing as a traditional street hail, on-demand services for passengers ready to travel, according to the petition, basically saying it's the same as standing in the street yelling for taxi. At the end of April, however, the credit unions learned that the TLC found that e-hails by Uber and other similar car services do not violate medallion owners' hail exclusivity rights, and that the TLC was not planning to enforce any rules against Uber for its e-hails. With about 15,000 for-hire vehicles on the streets of New York, Uber has put medallion taxis in, a mi in the minority, but still plans to more than double its vehicle army, according to the petition. 
as an Uber as an, and as Uber continues to grow, excuse me, the market value of a taxi medallion has dropped from about one million dollars to under six hundred seventy-five thousand dollars. While TLC data shows a rapid decline in taxi rides and revenues, the credit unions say foreclosures are looming as borrowers begin to default on their medallion loans, foreshadowing the possible collapse of both the medallion market and the taxi industry. The lenders warn. Uh, Montauk Credit Union, Progressive Credit Union, and Lopto Federal Credit Union joined at Melrose in the petition. The name they named the New York City, the TLC, TLC Chairwoman Mira Joshi, Mayor Bill de Blasio, and the New York State Attorney General Eric Schneiderman as respondents. Chicago's principal medallion lender made similar similar claims of industry doom in a May 19th complaint against Capital One. This is um is, is, am I right? Is prearranged going to be the thing that makes the difference here? I, you know, I I think that prearranged is important. I think that this stems, though, beyond the statute that exists. I think that this is the next phase. This is that, that you know, technology evolving phase that taxi drivers are going to have to deal with. And, you know, a couple things about taxi cab drivers. Some of them are very, very hardworking people. Some of them really do deserve the money that they make. They work hard. They should get paid. But there's a vast majority of them that are still, even though people are more aware of their surroundings, they'll take people extended routes. They'll screw them over, get them to their destination. I've seen it. I've been in a car with people, you know, in a cab uh, when I was in Chicago where this happened. And I happened to know where I was supposed to be going. And there, when I said to the, 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 it was actually a female driver, it was me and another passenger. Um, and I said, why are you going this way? There was no explanation. And when I said, go this way, of course, it saved a ton of time. You know why they were going that way. So <laughs> I think that, that, that people, there's, there's, I don't know, unless you're a city dweller, I think that there's some level of distrust of taxi cab operators. So that's A. But B, how can you stop the forward progression of technology with a company like like Uber, who has very positive reviews and results, and it's it's really becoming quite trendy in all cities? How can you now say technology's got a halt because your e-hail is going to violate the the taxi cabs uh, you know owners' rights? I, I don't know. I think that this is a, a larger story in the sense that. We have to now adopt and adapt to technological advances, which is why the city to kind of accommodate the e-hail language that they you know, had never been heard of before. So I, two questions. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. Oh, uh, questions on this. One is what is, you know, I, I guess I look at this as, you know, it's a business competition and why this was ever regulated in the first place. And the second question is, how long before insurance companies deny any claim you possibly have because you were under the Uber contract while you're hauling person? So that, that's, that's an interesting question um, about the insurance. But I'm going to go back to the first one and deal right, with right, that yeah. one. All right. So I think the reason for the regulation was to prevent unlicensed people that the city cannot control. Because New York City has a very, very um, heavy hand 
stemming from the Department of Consumer Affairs that, that really has far-reaching effects into business and, uh, in this case, you know, the equivalent in the taxi world. But they regulate, like all cities, you know, L.A., San Francisco, but, but New York is very restrictive in its operations. And they do so in general to protect consumers. I think that that's their primary mission. I mean, some will say that they do it in order to generate revenue and fines for the city of New York. But I think that the <laughs> overall legislative intent behind it is to protect consumers. And so they don't mm -hmm. want people getting into a cab with somebody that's got you know, a yellow car um, and, and not having some way to penalize the driver if something bad were to happen. I think that that's the idea behind the regulation. Now, I think they were trying to limit the amount of people who were applying for permits and being uh, a taxi license because there are so many thousands of taxis in the city. I, I don't, you know, I, so I understand the, the regulatory issue. I don't know how Uber is going to fit in, but I cannot see that Uber is going to be asked not to operate in New York City. I think Uber is going to continue. And then your second point about the insurance, that's a good point because I think that if Uber has insurance, they have negotiated a massive deal with one, primarily one insurance company. And I think sure. that, you know, unless, and I don't, I don't know specifically, do you know about Uber, when you're a driver, do you have to have your own insurance or does Uber have a blanket policy that covers everybody? Do you know how that works? I don't. I'm looking that up right now, and, and there was there was something else. Uh, oh, and there's another pro, another company called Lyft, L Y F T, that um, um, that um, uh, exists that, that does the whole Uber thing as well. Um, and I'm, I'm going to have to dig dig some research up because I don't want to say that they do or they don't. Um, you know, it's it's almost like you have to apply to their uh, create an account to try to get everything that they are supposed to tell you. But back to the regulation side of things real quick um, is you don't read to my knowledge of taxi cab abductions, but right. there are abductions on record or alleged abductions on record using Uber. Well, maybe they selected so, that optional um, package with the abduction package. Was the <laughs> Got a sadomasochistic. <laughs> I'd like to be taking a forty-third uh, and a masochistic. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, was a whip me, beat me, make me feel cheap and put me in an Uber car. Um, the <laughs> and so I'll have to look into that, um, and we'll maybe we'll follow up on that because um, there are two companies now that I, I, I found out because I, I looked up insurance while driving for Uber as a as a as a search item and you get what Uber and Lyft drivers need to know about car insurance or, or at least about accidents. And, you know, it's, but it's not, it's at all about car accidents.com. And so right. here, according to this third party, it says Uber and Lyft require all of their drivers to have car insurance further Uber and Lyft do provide some additional coverage for their drivers as supplemental insurance to the driver's personal insurance policies. However, Uber and Lyft drivers must be aware that Uber and Lyft are still very new services. Their policies procedures are evolving. For example, Uber and Lyft have just recently changed their corporate insurance provisions. If you are an Uber or Lyft driver, you should check with Uber or Lyft. So again, I think I'm going to 
and, and here's another thing, and Uber or Lyft drivers, personal car insurance may not cover them, um, you know, because you're now you're, you're in business. Well, I think what and you found there, the game. it totally does. And I think what you found there answers the question. So I think that um, your personal insurance is going to be primary over Uber's. Uber's going to give you supplemental. So with, mm-hmm. okay. with car insurance, especially if you're driving a fleet or even with a rental car, if you sign a rental car agreement, you're going to sign something, I guarantee you, that says, if you look at the backside of that agreement, there will be a small provision that says, your insurance is primary over all others. And there's issues in different states about primacy of coverage and whose coverage really prevails and can you make your insurance company primary over another and that whole thing. So I think here your insurance company is primary. Now, your point, which is an excellent point, if you have a residential, an average person, a non-business insurance policy that is going to be covering you, it covers your passengers but does it cover your passengers if they are paying clients? I say, for the most part, no. And therefore, that's going to force Uber drivers to get a business policy, which would extend to occupants of the vehicle, which is obviously going to come with higher premiums. But it sounds to me and like... If I were the, yeah, sure. Yeah. What were you going to say? Oh, and if I were the insurance company, I would... I would make sure that I was asking, are you driving this for a ride-sharing service or in the course of business when you insure your vehicle with me? And if you're found that you are, you're null, your policy is null and void. You're done. Because as an insurance yeah. agent, I'm betting you won't. <laughs> yeah. You know what? If you and when lie... You're paying. Yeah. If you lie or omit a fact on your insurance application for any insurance, homeowners, car... That is grounds for the insurance company to deny coverage because you lied about something on the application. And, and then it's simply, look, we asked you if this was for business or personal. You said personal. It's not. Therefore, there's no coverage. And now you just had an accident, and the damage to the, the passenger is in excess of $100,000. You are personally on the hook for that money. So... I think that if you're an Uber driver, you really need to do some research and, and talk to, you know, some people that can help you. Well, and here's the thing. Actually, I picked up an article on Forbes.com about an individual who said the don't ask, don't tell strategy usually works until there's a crash. Ian, a Bay Area Uber driver, was off duty when his car was hit by another car in October. While he was filing a claim with Geico, they asked him if he had ever worked for Uber or Lyft. And he panicked, he said. They put me on the spot. So I answered honestly and said yes, but I wasn't working when this happened. He and like other drivers in the story, yes, not to be identified by their real name, blah, blah, blah. His claim was processed normally, but a few weeks later, Geico sent Ian a letter saying his policy was canceled. So they covered, to me, I'm reading that they covered it, but they, but Geico immediately dropped him. Yeah, and that could happen because maybe Geico felt as though, look, it's a small enough claim. We're going to cover it and get rid of it. Then we drop him. And the, the basis for the being dropped is you violated our terms and conditions. You know, you could, you had to identify this as a business. So sure. No, that's, and that's the thing. I mean, now you've got to get into commercial policies and that's, that's if, if I were trying to squeeze Uber in a particular city, that's what I would do. Yeah. 
Well, you know what? That could make it more difficult for Uber to solicit drivers if they don't want to pay the the commercial premiums. But if I were Uber, I would be launching a campaign where I'm talking about how much more money you make as an Uber driver versus the expense that you have to pay out on a premium for your insurance. That's how I would sure. represent that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's 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 a cost of doing business. Right, exactly. And uh, and and we'll see how that and and that may force some individuals out of the business, but um, it may also um, um, create a, a, a rate increase. It could have some different ramifications. But uh, yeah, I would definitely, if I were Uber, I would make sure people, hey, you make sure your eyes are dotted, your T's are crossed, because you are responsible. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the world of contracting. <laughs> yep. Totally true. Yeah, okay. Yes. Uh, so we'll see what happens with that. Um, yeah, excuse me. We'll jump down to Pikeville, Kentucky, a class action seeking suspended disability benefits. You mentioned this at the top of the program. Pikeville, Kentucky, a Social Security blindsided hundreds of Kentuckians whose attorney may have defrauded the government of millions. Two of those clients claim in federal court. In May, the Social Security Administration suspended payments for 900 former clients of attorney Eric Kahn, interesting name, whom the government suspects may have used fraudulent information to secure over $22 million in benefit payments from the agency. In a May 30 complaint, Cheryl Martin and Robert Martin, no relation, claim that, which in Kentucky is odd in just because, <laughs> claim, <laughs> claim that the agency has chosen to punish hundreds of individuals for whom there is no allegation of wrongdoing without bringing charges against the attorney. So basically, they shut them down. As the plaintiffs note, Khan had not been charged with any crime, but the U.S. government sued him on June 1 to recoup allegedly fraudulently uh, obtained disability benefits. Khan represented Cheryl Martin in her disability case following a car accident, and Martin began receiving benefits in 2009. She says she received a suspension of benefits letter from Social Security on May 22nd. The letter claimed that her benefits were suspended because there was reason to believe fraud was involved in certain cases, including evidence from several doctors, and that she had 10 days to submit additional evidence to the Appeals Council, because they'll handle it real quick, after which her case would be remanded to an administrative law judge to await a new hearing, during which time she would receive no Social Security disability payments. They cut her off, complaint states. Martin, who is 65, has stage four lung cancer with a 5% chance of survival, and she has prescribed approximately 22 medications. Monthly out-of-pocket expenses for her exceed $600. Class of affected individuals seeks a judgment that the SSA violated the Social Security Act when it suspended the benefits as well as an injunction restoring benefit payments. According to an article and the Lexington, Kentucky Herald leader, attorney Eric Kahn, who is still licensed to practice law in Kentucky, was the subject of damning reports by both the U.S. Senate and House of Representatives, the Wall Street Journal, and worse, 60 Minutes. The class Ooh. is seeking restoration. <laughs> you don't want them at your door. The class no is seeking restoration of their benefits and injunction preventing Social Security from suspending them again. This is absolutely where the, the government just runs amok. Yeah. Um, and tramples everyone. This is a this is a shark strapped to the back of a rhino. It tramples and eats everything in its path. Yeah. Um, without consideration. Uh, thank you, Jack Handy. Um, the government has said just because you're suspected, or you're not even you, your attorney is suspected of this, you're done, and then you can appeal, but you're still done during the appellate process. 
Yeah. Oh, we'll give you we'll we'll, we'll give you back pay if you're proven sure. But in the meantime, you starve and die. Yeah, maybe they're hoping that people drop dead so that they can eliminate some of their payments. <laughs> yeah, sorry, the class action is 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 not approved because nobody's around anymore. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> this is one one, one plaintiff. Um, but yeah, no, I mean this is what do you? I mean, this is not something that could happen. This is something, excuse me, that could happen to anyone. What do you yeah. do? You know, there's not much you can do, unfortunately, because you are at the mercy of the government. I think that the best thing for somebody to do in a situation like this is to go out and to get a very large law firm with political ties to represent you. You know, there's, there are times when getting a very large law firm, uh, it's important because some of the, the large firms, I'm talking about the ones that are, um, you know, in this country and other countries, the ones that have a thousand attorneys, you know, 500 attorneys, they typically have some political pull as well. And they're used to doing this type of work. And, and unfortunately, that's where you've got to go to get something like this resolved, because this is this is a big deal. And, you know, you don't even know. You know you've got two two things you've got to deal with. A, you've got to get your benefits reinstated and determine whether or not um, you can do that quickly before you, you do have a problem, like the woman with stage four cancer. But then you've got the issue of the attorney. Did he do something wrong? But on top of that, if the attorney did something wrong, what if the clients did something wrong too? So now you have to determine sure. what, what client told the attorney. I mean, that's a mess in and of itself because is the attorney doing something wrong? Is he scamming or is it his client scamming him? And what's the, what's the situation with this attorney? Is a solo practitioner? You know, was he overwhelmed? Um, there are so many issues here that, you know, you, you just, you don't know where to go, but you do know that these people that legitimately are entitled to benefits and need it should have it, not have to wait through an appeals process. And that's, exactly, yeah, that's the, the unfortunate part. Is I mean, and you say, you know, get a law firm that's, that has some political ties. Um, and I know I've done this in the past with with um, uh, with with family members is going to your congressman. Yeah, definitely. That, I mean, I've not been in this particular problem. I mean, this sounds like a no fun, no win situation. But I've used those that that particular angle in the past, and it's worked well. Um, yeah. You know, those are the guys they're supposed to be. You're supposed to be paying them, supposedly, so get them to work with you. <laughs> take take a ride to Washington, D.C. and camp out in the uh, West Lawn. No, it's a real good point, though, to make. I mean, because you, you do have that option, and you should avail yourself of it. And, um, you, you know, I think it's easier than what people think. I think that a lot of people think, well, I'm never, you know, nobody will ever give me an appointment. I won't get in there to speak to anybody. I won't be able to write a letter. I won't be able to. But that's not true, is it? No. No, <laughs> you, you'd be surprised how, how helpful they can be. Um, and if they tell you there's nothing they can do, then okay, go to the media. Right. <laughs> yep. don't, don't just, don't, don't call your, your local TV crime solver or what do they call themselves? The, the people that ask the tough questions, but seem to rarely get answers. They just kind of leave it hanging. Um, yeah. But yeah, wait on that one, but, but at least start, start with your congressman. Um the Waco mess down there in Texas, or Waco, whatever they call it, will drop the K. Capital charges for being at the Waco melee. Um, a businessman in Austin, Texas, was charged with a capital offense after being arrested on a, and you'll have to explain this one, 
still in the name warrant <laughs> merely because he was present at the Waco biker shootout, he claims in court. Matthew uh, Allen Clendenin sued Waco police officers Manuel Chavez, Waco, McLennan County, and 20 Doe officers in federal court on Friday, alleging constitutional violations. Clendenin was charged with the capital offense of engaging in organized criminal activity, jailed under a million dollars worth of bond, and the police took his bike, and they're going to try to sell it for profit, he says in the lawsuit. Clendenton says he has no criminal record before his May 17th arrest. Nine people were killed and at least 18 injured in the May 17th melee at the Twin Peaks restaurant, Bike Night, which degenerated into a fight between rival biker gangs, the Banditos, and the Cossacks, said police. You know, police were kind of involved as well. But Clendenton, a recreational most motorcyclist who belongs to the Scimitar's Motorcycle Club, which is apparently just for recreational motorcyclists, says he did absolutely nothing wrong that day and was, in fact, hiding from the violence when police arrested him and seized his bike. Police arrested more than 170 people on identical charges and possible class action, I don't know, all of whom were given $1 million bonds with no regard to their individual situation, Clendenton says in the complaint. The criminal complaint accuses Clendenton of being a member of a criminal street gang who did commit or conspire to commit murder, capital murder, or aggravated assault against the laws of the state. Claims that Chavez, one of the officers involved, and other officers intentionally withheld material information regarding plaintiff Matthew Allen Clendenton in the criminal complaint, such as the facts that he was not a member of the Cossacks nor the Bandidos, that he did not participate in any of the violence occurring at Twin Peaks, and in fact, hid from the violence. Clendenton blames Waco for a policy of allowing police to use a fill-in-the-name criminal complaint without individualizing facts. He also claims that Waco has a policy of illegally seizing vehicles from those illegally arrested with the hopes of selling those vehicles for Texas law allows government agencies to seize property through a civil lawsuit, even if there is no criminal case. This has been this has made several civil forfeitures profitable for district attorneys. A report from the Public Policy Research Institute says that from 2003 to 2012, state law enforcement agencies confiscated $486 million in asset forfeiture cases. That's a lot in nine years. That's $50 million a year on yeah. average. The Waco Tribune Herald reported that McLennan County District Attorney Abel Reyna, who took office in 2011, has used forfeiture to make more than $1 million of contraband, including cars and computers. Clendenton's attorney told Courthouse News that Clendenton, Clendenton was merely hanging out with his biker buddies at Twin Peaks and had no idea there would be a shootout. Hey, I'm going to the shootout today, guys. Coming? Oh, that's not today. Next week. Sorry. <laughs> The only weapon Clendenton did have was a mini pocket knife, which his parents gave him for Christmas <laughs> to Matt with love, and which he never brandished. Clendenton says his arrests put him in jeopardy of losing custody of his two children. He posted a $100,000 bond this week and was released from jail. He seeks damages of lost income, damage to his reputation, which he'll probably never get, mental anguish, loss of use of his motorcycle, and attorney costs. Waco said he does not comment on pending criminal and civil matters. Another man arrested the shootout filed a habeas petition last week challenging his arrest and $1 million bond. First of all, it's a bit of a long story, but you kind of got to go through what, why he's seeing what he's seeing. Um, but the first question is, what is a fill-in-the-name warrant? When you don't know the name of the person that you're seeking to arrest, certain jurisdictions, as in Waco, will allow a warrant to be issued without the person's name. I know I've got a bunch of bad people out there. I have no idea what their names are. I need a warrant. And the judge gives you the mm -hmm. permission to do this fill it in later warrant. You know, it's like Mad Libs. So, you know, you can go and, and everywhere. And, everybody does this? No, no, not everywhere. 
Um, oh, okay. It, oh, so it is it, okay. Yeah, it depends on, on what jurisdiction you're in. There are jurisdictions that don't allow that. But in Waco, you know, it, it, they do. And so that's how this guy got swept up. And, and to add to what you're talking about, there is an article in USA Today about um, a biker protest that happened this weekend. Said several hundred bikers rumbled into Waco, Texas on Sunday to peacefully demonstrate against last month's shooting and mass arrest of fellow bikers. Uh, they're, they're using the slogan, all for one, and that's part of their protest on their Facebook page. Uh, what they're basically saying is that you, know, you can't say all for one, one for all, when it comes to arresting people. And if you're <laughs> not you know, doing something illegal or improper, then how can you be arrested? So according to USA Today, uh, there were more than 170 bikers arrested with bail set at a million dollars each. And, um, you know, they talk about this protest on Sunday. They said that protesters at Sunday's rally wore T-shirts reading Waco Biker Massacre and held up signs stating bikers have rights too. Uh, it was a peaceful demonstration, but it did get the attention of Waco public officials. So in this guy's case, in, in Clinton, I think this guy's got a case. I, if he is telling the truth, and if none of these things occurred, then I think that you know you can't have guilt by association when it comes to yeah, yeah. criminal law. <laughs> so, yeah, I I running with dogs and getting fleas for the cost of a hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, I, um, I, I don't know. I, it's so hard because you see what's in the media. I don't know if this is a Sons of Anarchy planned. You know, let's go out and we're going to have a shootout. Like you said, you know, shootout tomorrow. But um, <laughs> it, it certainly is questionable. I mean, maybe something happened that triggered this. Maybe it wasn't some sort of planned event where everybody knew. I don't think that's the case at all. At least that's not what the media is reporting it to be. And this guy yes, got they have. Sure, sure. No, and actually, it was nice to see the Cossacks and the Banditos come together last week for that rally. Um, the and not kill each other. Yeah. <laughs> the um, <laughs> if there is, and, and here's, I guess, the question. You know, when you talk about guilt by association, if there, because all we've heard so far is that it was the Cossacks and the Banditos. Um, if there were um, scimitars involved in it. Is there any form of plausible deniability? Because, you know, kind of like, oh, if you're in a club, is everybody in the club knows what's going on? You know, I think that on... Or is that on, speculative? I think it's speculative, but I think on the initial arrest, you can just scoop up everybody. Because uh, remember, it's just probable cause. And you see a group of bikers at a, a melee, and you're going to just scoop them all up. But then you've got to sort it out later. And if you're going to actually bring charges against somebody, you have to have some, you know, some, some sort of concrete evidence against them. Um, and this guy it doesn't seem like he did anything wrong. Go back to the New York City incident with the bikers on the, the Henry Hudson Parkway who chased the driver mm. and smashed in the window. Now, not all of those bikers were arrested. There were bikers at the tail end of that convoy who were never you know arrested because they had nothing to do with it so i think that this is an overreaching by police i think that they've brought in people 
that probably have done nothing wrong. But I think that to some extent, some of them might be hardcore bikers. That's their lifestyle. They're not even missed from the general public. And so it's easy to keep those people in. And maybe those are more of the outlaw bikers. But then you've got somebody like Cleninen. You know, I, I think it's a different story. I think that the facts show that this guy probably shouldn't be charged with anything. You know, unless you can show <laughs> that there's some sort of organized attempt, like you said, and everybody knows we're down here and this is my job and this is your job and it's what we're going to do. I don't know. I think they're wrong. Hmm. Well, and that's, you know, the guy filing the habeas petition, basically the same thing without the lawsuit, correct? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, well, there you go. And we'll see what happens with that. You know, and that's going to be um, uh, not something that goes away down there. I think they're going to continue to have problems. <laughs> yeah. Maybe maybe not as, as, as pronounced <laughs> as this one, but I'm sure they're going to still have issues. Um, speaking of getting warrants issued, warrants were issued for people who cheered at a Senatobia graduation in Mississippi. WREG.com reporting my 18-year-old daughter, Larnisha Walker, graduated from Senatobia. Hi, Linda Walker said. Henry said, you did it, baby. He waved his towel and went out the door. I don't know what he was doing with the towel, but that's neither here nor there. Walker explained. When she went across the stage, I just called out her name. Now there's a different name, Lakadra, just like that. Ursula Miller said when she shouted about her niece, supposed to be a different case. Miller, uh, it was Miller and Henry Walker were two of the four people asked to leave Senatobia High School's graduation ceremony for cheering. I read these very early in the morning. That's why I can't remember. Uh, police at Northwest Mississippi Community College, where the high school ceremony was held, said the superintendent asked the crowd not to scream and to hold their applause until the end. Reasonable. Otherwise, they would be asked to leave. However, that wasn't the end of it. A week or two later, I was served with some papers, Miller explained. The papers threatened to throw them all in jail. Senatobia School District Superintendent Jay Foster filed a disturbing the peace charge against the people who yelled at graduation. Officers issued warrants for their arrests with a possible $500 bond. It's crazy, Henry Walker says. The fact that I might have to bond out of jail, pay court costs, or a $500 fine for expressing my love, it's ridiculous, man. It's ridiculous. Superintendent Foster said the charges were far from ridiculous. While Foster declined an on-camera interview with WREG, he said he's determined to have order at graduation ceremonies. Okay, Miller said, I can understand they can escort me out of graduation, but to say they are going to put me in jail for it, what else are they allowed to do? The family said they are going to try to support their loved ones and should not be forced to go to court. The four people charged are expected in court June 9th, tomorrow. Uh, yeah, a little overzealous, but you know, can they really, these, these charges aren't going to stick, are they? You, you would hope not. This is crazy. This guy's nuts, out of control. I understand saying, hold your applause. And I also even understand, while I don't agree with it, I do understand him saying, all right, if you applaud when I've asked you not to, we're going to ask you to leave. That's fine. Those are your rules. We'll abide by that. But then to, to go and file the lawsuit, because he must have order. I think he's watching too many movies or maybe some sort of World War II, you know, Hitler speech that was just getting to his, his mind. That's crazy. Why would you do that to somebody? Because, you know, this guy, he, he wasn't doing anything wrong. Are you kidding me? Talk about freedom of speech. I mean, yeah, all right, please, because it's, I told you not to cheer, but now I'm going to go press charges? Man, I'd be pretty annoyed. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and up next, I guess next week, he's considering banning dancing. 
Um, no, just yeah, Footloose. Footloose. Wasn't that a movie? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Actually. <laughs> yeah. Pretty pretty backwards. Um, you know. I and I, yeah, I'm I'm all for respect and order, but um, honestly, I think this is kind of pushing it. And I yeah, it's um, I I don't see the word superintendent in front of Mr. Foster's name for much longer. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> unless, unless the board's pushing him to file charges. Well, then again, I'm, eh, doesn't really say about that. So, um, Back into some more school news. A local student with special needs fights back when a school tells him he can't be part of field day. Fairless Hills, apparently very fairless, Pennsylvania. A Bucks County High School student with special needs fought back when his school told him he could not participate in student field day. He took to social media, and that changed everything. Jake Wesley says, it isn't fair. I don't think people in wheelchairs or with any disease should be excluded from activities. As a child, Jake was diagnosed with Duchenne muscular dystrophy, a generic disease, or excuse me, yeah, generic disease, I think it may have supposed to have been genetic, um, that degrades muscles over time. Generally, it makes life tough and makes life short. He's always been a strong advocate for himself and for other kids with disabilities, says Jake's father, Keith. Keith says that advocacy kicked in last Friday when the families. Uh, received their letter from Jake's school. My wife and I were very upset. The letter from Bucks County Technical High School was addressed to about 60 students labeled medically exempt from the school's athletic field day. In plain language, it tells parents their children aren't allowed to participate. They have to wear special wristbands <clears throat> Nazis, to denote their status, and they're caught remo- if they're caught removing the bands for participating in the day, they face, quote, disciplinary consequences. Hitler. When I yeah. got the letter, I was pretty mad because I really like Field Day, Jake says. Within 10 minutes of getting that letter, Jake took action, posting it on Twitter, which I don't agree with. But we'll talk about that. Calling for justice and connecting to disability groups. Jake stood up, pardon the pun, and took his school took note. Dr. Leon Polsky says, my first reaction was, we made a mistake and it needs to be fixed. When school officials saw what Jake wrote, they immediately retracted the letter they'd been putting out for years and issued a full apology. I'm happy he brought it to our attention because, again, we were wrong, says the doc. Jake's advocacy is already changing classroom culture, making life better for students now and for years to come. Says, I'm very proud. Yeah, he's the man, says Jake's dad. Um, Horrible thing the school did, number one. Yep. But, again, this is that whole taking it to Twitter before you take it up the proper actions. And I'm not faulting the kid for it. He, I, I probably, if, it was, if I were his parents, I probably would have said, let me call the superintendent first or the principal or the doctor, whomever. And let's see what yeah. he says. And then we'll go from there. But he got reserved. I mean, no, hopefully there won't be any lawsuits. This was handled about as well as you can handle it. Yeah, I, I think so too. Why? I think that, I mean, come on. I mean, the school is so wrong in doing this. And, you know, you don't need to have this brought to your attention when you know you're sending out this same letter every year. Um, you know, I think that uh, I think that the kid got results. I think that he should be commended for it because it really isn't fair. And while I probably would have done the same thing that you said, I would have called the superintendent first. Chances are that that call probably would have fallen on deaf ears. You know, just yeah, yeah, I agree. Year. I agree. One hundred percent. Yeah, I would have done the same thing, though. I would have called first. But I know from dealing with my kids and I know where that would have gone. Well, this is the policy. You know, if he doesn't want to come that day, he doesn't have to come. But, you know, it'd be marked as an absence. I could just hear it. 
and then getting off the phone, you know, your blood pressure is skyrocketing. You don't know what to do. And I think that, um, you know, this kid putting it on Twitter, I think he did a, a, a good thing for him and others in his situation because it's really totally not fair. You know, my middle he son. He handled it about as well as he could handle it. Yeah. My middle son has a pacemaker. He's nine years old. There's just certain activities he can't do, like he can't be hit. So he can't play any contact sport. But otherwise, he's completely just like everybody else. And because and, sure. he's just an electrical problem with his heart. His last school that we had to take him out of, the gym teacher refused to let him participate in gym. He made him sit on the sidelines and do things like clean up the locker or clean up the closet. And when I heard about this, you know, we were outraged. And when you, you go to the, the uh, officials at the school, it was, well, you know, we're trying to, to protect him because uh, they're playing a sport that involves some potential physical conduct, uh, contact. You know, and that's just BS. And that's ultimately we had to pull him out. Um, you know, I, I would never think to go to social media and start launching something like this. And he's too young. But I'm glad you have, to you see. have ESQ behind your name. <laughs> yeah, that only goes so far. I think you can buy ESQ is very cheap now online. <laughs> oh, dang, I'll look for one. Started yep. started to see me as Bob Hughes Esquire. You, you got to go one of those sites where you can choose. You want to be a pastor or an ESQ? Do you want to be a, a psychic? They're all up there. If, if, if Catholic priests didn't have such a bad rap, I'd consider no. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, I digress. Yeah, no, it. it um, yeah, you, you 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 handle it as well as you can handle it, and hope that it doesn't go any further than that. And and, and like I said, this this kid handled it as well as he probably could handle it. I I would have handled it if I don't like taking the next step before I've taken one step, you know, but right. uh, I'm not going to say I never do it. <laughs> yep. I try. And, and that's my wife kind of gets irritated with me because when there is a problem, my first reaction is let me make a phone call. No, yep. don't make the phone call. No, I yep. need to make the phone call. <laughs> Go down there with a and ask the question. Yeah, well, no, my... and, and the question is, <laughs> you know, is is what I'm being told actually what happened? Yeah. This is this is what my child is telling me. Is that what happened? <laughs> yeah. You know, then you get the rest of the story. So, and in this position, like you say, I think that the the phone call probably would have fallen on death. That's just what we do. We're protecting him out of that. And say, okay, all right, well, we'll see. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Uh, well, so it's eleven thirty-seven. Are we going to continue? I think we should probably wrap it up for today. Okay. I think we've got through everything that was, um, you know, significant. So we're going to wrap it up for today. Uh, a couple announcements before we go. Uh, obviously, I'll be back tomorrow with um, business and legal Q&A live. But this Thursday, we're back on with our regular interview shows. I know it's been a while. Um, you know, we've had the Understanding Business segment, but there's not been a lot of interviews. So this Thursday, we have back with us Captain Lee from Bravo's hit TV show, Below Deck. Captain Lee was on, if you remember, a few months ago, um, towards the end of 2014, and it was, uh, it was a good show. He was, was kind enough. He was on his way into New York City to meet with Andy Cohen to do the live reunion show and took the time to speak with us for just about an hour. And uh, we had a lot of questions that came out of that interview for Captain Lee that we couldn't get to. 
but he is uh, gracious enough to come back onto the show this Thursday at 10 a.m., and we are going to get through all of those questions that were posed to Captain Lee. So that's this Thursday, 10 a.m. Eastern. It'll be live. Uh, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Blog Talk Radio so that you are notified of upcoming shows like Captain Lee's show. Obviously, Blog Talk Radio will give you the live feed. Uh, you can always download it later at iTunes and, and hear what we've talked about. So check that out. Don't forget this Thursday. Bob and I are working on putting together a music show that involves business, law, and music. I'm really excited about it. We were just talking about it before the show went live. And hopefully in the next few weeks, we will have something up and running. That show is going to air on Wednesdays. And uh, in, in theory, it's going to involve a, a, a musical group or an artist. And we're going to be talking to them about their business experience, legal experience, and uh, about their music as well. So that's going to be a fun show. That's in the works and will happen very, very soon. So keep checking utlradio.com for that. I have nothing else. Bob, you have anything for me? Uh, nothing constructive. All right. <laughs> All right. And that's going to do it for today. I want to thank everybody for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe. Thanks again to the subscribers that we picked up over the weekend on YouTube to bring us over 400. So I'm very excited about that. Don't forget to check out UTL Radio. Leave your comments, feedback. Let us know what you like, don't like about the show. Uh, if there's anything you don't like, it's Bob's fault. Uh, other than that, Ooh. we uh, right. Oh, it's Bob's fault. Uh, we'd like to thank I'll you for that. listening. I'll take that burden. All right, and uh, I will be back tomorrow with business and legal Q and A. Bob will be back next Monday. Don't forget to tune in to Captain Lee on Thursday. Remember that there's power in understanding the law. savings on new and previously leased furnishings. That's right, huge savings. At Court Furniture Clearance Center, choose from our wide variety of new and previously leased furniture and decor for your home or office. You'll find sofas from $199.99 and more. Everything in our 9,000 square foot showroom is Court certified, guaranteed, and in stock. Ready for delivery or to take home today. Visit our Chantilly Court Furniture Clearance Center at 13946 Lee Jackson Memorial Highway or go online at courtclearancefurniture.com. Mention Radio 20 and get 20% off.